Are you going to question your reality or are you going to make supper? I'm making supper. Because your tummy is a starving reality. Starving Marvin. That's my stomach. Slime in the ice machine. Marvin Zindler. Eyewitness News. H-Town. Yo, Falsetto. What's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? The best I could do as far as narrowing down a favorite scene or two of dialogue in 1999's The 13th Floor. It's a two-way tie. A two-way tie, Cinematic Fanatics. A two-way tie, Red Devil. Hello. Say hello, Red Devil, to these Cinematic Fanatics. Hello, hello, So the two-way tie, I like them equally. The first is between Douglas Hall, played by the very attractive Craig Bierko, and Jane Fuller, played by the also very attractive Gretchen Mole. I know the truth. Where are you? You could call it the end of the world. I love how he says it. It's very cool. It's very resigned. It's very noir. And a good reveal. And then I love the scene where Detective McBain, who you'll recognize as the Allstate commercial guy, and he was the president, David Palmer, in 24, and he was in a prior Slick Flick pick. He was one of the president's SS, basically hitmen, named Tim Colin. But it is the great Dennis Haysbert. And he says, So, is someone going to unplug me now? Talking to Jane. Do me a favor, will you? When you get back to wherever it is you come from, just leave us all the hell alone down here, okay? It's very interesting, because for the whole film, this Detective McBain has been trying desperately to figure out what the fuck is going on. And this shows such a level of awareness that he understands that he's not even real, and that there's multiple layers to this world. And that is insane. There's one contender exchange of dialogue between Jason Whitney, a.k.a. Jerry Ashton, a.k.a. the real-world person Vincent D'Onofrio. Hey, what'd you do to the world? And then Douglas Hall turned it off. Ooh, chilling. Now, my favorite scene, similar to The Matrix, a world within a world, in this case, a sim within a sim. It has to be something that's mind-numbingly, stupefyingly shocking, and it delivers. When Vincent D'Onofrio drives out to the outskirts of town, the outer rim of the desert, as it were, and he looks out, he sees something that, cleverly, the director does not show us. Where you really get the payoff is later learning about the sim within a sim, when Douglas Hall goes out to the exact same congruent location, and he sees what the end of the sim or the end of the world looks like. And it's an unfinished, incomplete, green machine mainframe. And it's totally fucking weird. And it's totally earth-shatteringly disturbing. And his face tells you all you need to know. So I call this scene, driving out to the end of the sim, the unseen green machine. I love this scene. I love the 13th floor. Nobody talks about the 13th floor because the Matrix grabbed up all the kudos and all the credit. But the 13th floor is an intelligently made, well-acted, neo-noir, sci-fi fucking flick, and I love it. You know what I like in that scene is when the bird yep. flies. It's like, a green, it it's like a green bird glitch in the Matrix, yeah. as it were. Like It's a normal bird, and then it flies into the- Unseen green. Unseen green. And then it turns green. It's so cool. I like that. So, Red Devil, what is your favorite line and scene from the slick flick pick? 
Well, my favorite line, it's between, it, I think it's the first time that Douglas Hall and Jane Fuller meet. And they're having this moment where they're, there's kind of recognition, but they're not understanding why. And I believe she's the one who says, they say that deja vu is usually a sign of love at first sight. I think that that's pretty cool. I like that. Did you have deja vu when you met me? Well, first of all, what I like about that dialogue is that, and The Matrix struggled with this a little bit, when you're going to do a sci-fi flick, even if you're dealing with robots or clones or carbon copy-based life forms, computer simulations that even if they have some sort of virtual sentience, if you're going to make a really good sci-fi flick, it's got to come back to the humanity. It's got to have feeling. It's got to have that contrast between cold robot and warm organs. And this film, it touches on that humanity, especially at the end when Douglas Hall and David's body is looking out at the beach with Gretchen Mole. You still feel the sense of, okay, they want to be happy. They're humans. But to answer your question, I've been telling you for a long time now that there was something about you that always felt familiar. Not like sister familiar, but just like someone that you feel a distant kinship with or someone that you feel like you can be yourself around and that not so much the completion of sentences in advance, but just more like you get a sixth sense that the person understands what you're trying to say. So you don't have to spell it out so overtly, much like the mark of a good film can be subtle. What's your favorite scene? Obviously, I like the scene that you you pointed out as well, but I actually wanted to choose the opening scene when you're walking in. This is when you're first introduced to Hannon Fuller, I think. So right at the beginning, he goes into this jazzy 1940s club where there's a singer, there's a big band, everybody's dancing. 1937. Oh, yeah. 1937. Thanks. I just love that. I, I always love scenes like that. Another one that comes to mind for comparison is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That opening scene, there's the dancing, the drinking, the craziness. Absolutely love that. And then later on, we kind of get to go back to the club before hours, and we get to peek inside a dance rehearsal. I just, anytime that comes up in a noir movie, love it. Well, and that's an example of superiority between the 13th floor and the Matrix. The Matrix absolutely had noir elements. It had rain, it had men in black, it had certain garb, wardrobe attire, it had these timeless cars that were distant yet familiar. But this film is absolutely noir, with the different time swaps and the period pieces. And this is during Tommy Guns and Fedoras for good chunks of the film. It taps into areas that The Matrix did not, because The Matrix wasn't that kind of movie. But this film is just so original, even though it pulls from familiar material. Greetings, cinematic fanatics. Allow us the pleasure of ushering you into your own coded, noted, digitally designed and downloaded simulation, programmed by our crack team of futuristic architects who designed your carbon copy creation station. And though your creation remains imitation, you'll jack in to sensory pleasures 
that transcend elation. Our protagonist labors the taxing task of playing three fucking roles. The unseen green machine past the desert rim horizon is but one of the simulation's green smokescreen plot holes. What commenced as innocent godlike games has warped David into a retro killer, setting demented goals. But these expendable digital units are devoid of souls. But as you, dear listeners, are warm, present, and real, we offer you your very own legit shit simulation via Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick Explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are our cinematic fanatics, Red Devil and I, your worthwhile fucking cinephiles. For your 23rd episode, we review one of our stranger-than-science, truer-than-fiction, unseemly green machine, smoke-screened, slick-flick pleasures. I have reveled in this film since my first youthful HBO cable viewing. This flick, though no doubt graphically, narratively, and cinematically slick, was a mere afterthought lost to the juggernaut that was Mr. Anderson's pill-swallowing, daily office-grind-wallowing, hollow, hologram existence in The Matrix. I confess to you, cinematic fanatics, this tip-top-shelf scientifically fictitious flick was gasping at straws and, for breath, at the box office and, with the exception of a sturdy but meager cult following, this film paled in comparison to the other adjacent sci-fi powerhouse that released in the same year, in the year 1999. McBain wears his detective hat and drives in his detecting lane, but are his thoughts merely impulses from a simulated brain? Will his patience and tenacity pay off or wane? Or has he simply grown fucking insane? This is a digitally slick, thought-provoking, satisfying fucking flick that touches a trio of genres, mystery, neo-noir, and sci-fucking-fi. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. Jane Fuller's a classy, sightly, femme fatale dame. Her Natasha's store clerk sacker clone, however, is lame. Her sick spouse, the cross-platform killer, proves the catalyst for this thriller. Can you imagine if a killer was on the prowl today that was jacking into our world and they called him the cross-platform killer or some shit? Can you imagine that? I don't even know how they'd catch that person. It's funny because we're talking about noir and rain and how rain is such a pivotal ingredient for a masterpiece cake of a noir and it just started raining outside in real time. And holy shit, if you look off in the horizon, you can see a green grid matrix. No! But her cross-platform killer, David, proves the catalyst for this thriller. And for these dead digital bodies, he is to blame. And if the uplifting beachfront ending is another programmed sim sham, that's a goddamn shame. Do our carbon-coated clones bleed different, or is our blood the same? Those answers await if you give in to the greenlit game, located on the 13th floor, circa May, so this was a summer film, 
1999. In 1937, you are shown colorfully coded noir, but as you stroll The Sims, you also see gore. Some visit these retroactive worlds when their present proves a bore, but if you still yearn for more, hit that shiny stainless steel button to the 13th fucking floor. I think there's an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, also called The 13th Floor. Yep, there sure is. Interesting. And that dealt with aliens. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair we just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a sick fucking flick pick. The 13th Floor is the flick. Note that's spelled out 13th. It's not a 1-3 with a little TH behind it. So very slick, hence our F-Stars pick. When Slick Flick pick is near, stick around, till Falsetto Prophets and Red Devil's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and, with the right Slick Flick pick, grant satisfaction. I am your worthwhile cinephile. She's Red Devil. You're our cinematic fanatics. Together in this triangle, we excitement unlock and run down the virtual world's unimaginative fucking clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with us, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind into virtual reality. Back to life, back, back to, to reality. reality. We'll be singing another song later during this episode. Ooh, I'm looking forward to it. We offer you pick 23. Slick flick pick. Futuristically sadistic. Leave well enough a clone. The 13th floor, 1999. Today, Red Devil and I will discuss the legality of exceeding the speed limit when your classic car is the only one on the road. Why their peepers change colors when their soulless shells are jacked in by a new download. When the units realize the limits of the Sims' green guys, they'll implode. Was Douglas wearing the bloody shirt or a nefarious node? And as the outro song suggests, will John David Douglas, see, that's the first name of his three characters, John David Douglas. I turned it into a full name. JDD. Will John David Douglas erase, rewind, or reload? Your worthwhile cinephiles, Falsetto Prophet, and Red Devil. Now, why is this pick 23? As in, it's 2023, right the fuck now? As in, one year from 2024, which is the time frame at the end of this film? Or did I pick this as 23 because it is 10 past 13, as in the 13th floor? And I didn't want it to be unfucking lucky. Ugh, I think you're like treading territory here of the movie 23. Remember that? Jim, Jim Carrey. Carrey. Never saw and it. And it was like super creepy. Didn't the see number it. of 23 was everywhere. And dun dun dun. Not a big Jim Carrey fan. I liked him when I was young, but I can't do him anymore. Just can't. Can't do it. He's too fucking I like weird. when, well, I like when he's in more serious roles. Yeah, well, how many times have you seen 23? Two. When was the last time you saw it? Don't know. Do you like it better than the 13th floor? Then we're not talking about that. Wow, you're just, ugh. I guess you're cooking dinner tonight. All you ever talk about is dinner on this show. You should do your own podcast where you talk about eateries. Okay. Please, Cinematic Fanatics, tell your comrades, counterparts, and companions about 
Chemo Walk Sessions. Please take a minute or two out of your busy schedule to go to Apple Podcast and leave comments and a rating. I would very much appreciate it. Red Devil would very much appreciate it. And Othello, our favorite bicolor creature cat, would absolutely appreciate it. Why? We do this for free. We do this for you and for me and for we. But it takes time. It takes time to research these flicks. It takes time to put all this together. And we very much appreciate knowing that we're making an impact in your important lives. Also, check out Darker Mile Marker, which is a separate broadcast also under Kimahawk Sessions, where every episode, Red Devil and I go over an episode of Baraska from Q Code, which is a terrifying podcast, and we review the shit out of it. Also, it's a good a time as any to tell you that Red Devil and I will be starting a new program here in a bit called Faux Ghostface, which is an episodic review of Scream, the TV series. And that will be a shit ton of fun. But anyways, go to Apple Podcasts, please leave reviews, and please tell all of your compadres about Chemohawk Sessions and the Slick Flick Picks. The 13th Floor is a 1999 science fiction neo-noir written and directed by Yosef Rusnik and produced by Roland Emmerich. Now, Roland Emmerich, that is a familiar name to me. I do not know any of Yosef's other works. It is loosely based on a short novel called Simulacron 3, which was written in 1964 by Daniel Galuyi and a remake of the German TV film World on a Wire from 1973. The film stars Craig Bierko, Gretchen Moll, Armin Mueller-Stahl. Now that's a familiar name. Yep. He was in a previous slick flick pick, The Game, and he has a very pronounced European accent. It also has Vincent D'Onofrio and, as mentioned, Dennis Haysbert. In 2000, the 13th Floor was nominated for the Saturn Award. Now, Saturn pertains to sci-fi films. Mm. For Best Science Fiction Film, but lost to The Matrix. Of course it lost to The Matrix. Nothing stood a chance against The Matrix. However, I agree with several critiques that I've read online that had this film had been released a year or two before The Matrix was even in the even distant mindset of the most futuristic thinkers, I think it would have fared a lot better and it would have made much more longer lasting ripples in the lagoon of film. The first time you ever saw this film was because I introduced you to it, right? Yeah, I, I never even heard of it. Okay. Yep. See, I mean, when it came out, I was 12. So, well, what I'm learning is a lot of these slick flick picks that I've done reviews on. I was way too young to be watching them, but watch them I did. That's a Seven, consistent theme I also have noticed in your film, Watching History. Seven, The Game. It seems like I was watching films, even R-rated films, as early as 11 or 12. But what's, Well, I was watching Toy Story. But what's interesting is I remember enjoying these films almost on as many levels as I do now. Obviously, I get a little bit more out of them now, and I spend more time analyzing them. But I remember liking them distinctly, even at a young age. Now, maybe that's because I was still impressionable and I was still growing. Maybe it's because they are of lasting film quality. I don't know. In 1999, Los Angeles, Hannon Fuller, played by Mueller Stahl, owns a multi-billion dollar computer enterprise and is the inventor of a newly completed virtual reality, that's VR to the initiated, simulation of 1937 Los Angeles filled with simulated humans unaware they are computer programs. 
When Fuller is murdered, just as he begins testing of the VR system, his friend-slash-protege, Douglas Hall, who is also the heir to the company, becomes the prime suspect. The evidence is such that he begins to doubt his own innocence. One thing I've learned is that these films come in waves. You make a movie about a virtual simulation, there will be like five or six big movies within a year or 18 months that are all of that same stock. We are about to do I Know What You Did Last Summer. I Know What You Did Last Summer, Scream, and Scream 2 all came out within about a year. And that's just the beginning. These movies tend to come in waves, Saving Private Ryan and The Thin Red Line, two World War II films that came out within a year of each other or less. The problem is, who gets there first, who has the more attractive cast, and who has the bigger production value? But what sucks is, and I understand why it happens, because we live in a country where it's free market and it's competitively driven. However, this is a perfect example. So this is the exemplar of a situation where, because other science fiction films were being released almost simultaneously, great slick flick picks like The 13th Floor get lost. They get covered in dust. They get forgotten. And it's a real fucking tragedy. Partly, in addition to having these films as a hobby, I do this to breathe new life and give these films that have long since been dormant a shot of adrenaline. That is my purpose, and I aim to serve. Do you like science fiction flicks? Yes and no. It's a very complicated answer, in fact. I am picky about them. And now that I say that, I can't really think of a sci-fi flick I don't like. You didn't really like 12 Monkeys? Agree. Anything with the apocalypse is really kind of like, or the end of the world, like, very much a toss-up for me. I loved... Book of Eli? Book of Eli. But would, would you have loved it if it wasn't Denzel Washington? I think I would have. Because the other one that stands out is I Am Legend, which I do remember liking I Am Legend when I watched it, but I never really care to watch it again, I don't mm. think. It's, it's never been like, oh man, I need to watch that movie again. I just watched it, I enjoyed it, and I've moved on with my life. I enjoyed I Am Legend. In retrospect, I like the first half of it still. But once you start seeing the actual hordes, I think they look stupid. And because of that, it causes a wound in the film that I don't know that it recovers from. Mm. And then you know you're going to have to sit through the dog dying. Yeah. And you know that you're going to have to sit through kind of this weird ending. But with Book of Eli, that's one of those films that I've seen probably about 10 times. And I've seen it about four times with you. And you love it. It's one of those films that's odd, but like, why do you love it? You know, because on the one hand, it's very depressing. It's very grimy. It's very dirty. You've got Denzel Washington like eating rabbits. You've got people that are eating humans. So you look at their hands to see if their hands shake because that's a telltale sign that they are cannibals. On its surface, you would not like it at all. But you do like it. And I think you like it because one, it's shot in a very cool way. But you like the religious component and you like the fact that he's blind. You just think that it's such a cool twist because I remember you talking about it. Well, yeah, but also I think it's the journey. Like he's on this mission. And it's really symbolic for all of us, right? Life is a mission. Life is, we're on this journey. We got to figure it out. We have to figure out what our mission is or what our purpose is for being on earth. And I think we all want to make an impact in some way or another. So him having this very linear journey and then all these adventures on the way, it's awesome. And Mila Kunis is awesome in that too. I do have a frame poster, Cinematic Fanatics, of Book of Eli. 
And that will be a slick flick pick that Red Devil and I will present together, obviously, one day, because we both love the film and it is worthy of that recognition. But right now, I'm looking at a frame poster in my studio of the 13th floor. And it says, as far as your purpose and your mission is, it says at the top of the poster, question reality. Now, cinematic fanatics, know that I'm not going to do it on every episode, but for some of these telltale slick flick picks, I will be releasing some artistic designs on Falsetto Profit Instagram. So please check those out as you will sometimes get teasers and you will get links to the Kimohawk Sessions episode pertaining to that visual medium. Now, the soundtrack, not only was the score of this film great, but the songs for the soundtrack were also great. You've got The Future of the Future, which is Deep Dish with Everything But the Girl. Now, you know Everything But the Girl. And I miss you like the deserts miss the rain. That was played all through the 90s. But that's Tracy Thorne, fantastic vocalist. And it's funny because that same band, Everything But the Girl, would also appear in the soundtrack to the movie Hitch, which is a song called Five Fathoms by Everything But the Girl. But I love Everything But the Girl, and I may actually, as I eat dinner tonight, listen to some of their old shit, because they are fucking amazing. Also, the song you get at the outro of the 13th floor is Erase Slash Rewind, performed by the Cardigans. And that song, every time it comes on at the end of this film, I always smile, because it takes me back to the 90s, it takes me back to the Cardigans, and this was a film that was released on the last year of the millennium. So, it was a very interesting time in my life, and every mammal's life. Remember Y2K and everybody thought the world was going to end? Yep. Wham Bam Cam and I talked about that on Slick Flick Pick number 10 when we went over End of Days. What were you doing in Y2K? I don't remember. I mean, I just, I was going to school. I was hanging out with my friends. Computers and the advent of the internet was so new. We were just kind of taking it day by day anyway, but I didn't really give a shit. Well, I stayed up and I was watching the Twilight Zone Marathon that comes up Every New Year's Eve. I don't know if it still yep, does that. But probably does. I did that. And I think it's I a long-standing rem- tradition. Yeah. Well, we're not even going to talk about how it did at the box office. It was fairly dismal. There were pockets of people that really appreciated this film. But I can't even find a review from Roger Ebert, which tells me that maybe he watched it. He just didn't officially review it. But again, like anything else, everything got swept up in the Matrix. So these little gems like the 13th floor were misplaced, displaced, and sorrowfully overlooked. It's got a good cast. And Craig Bierko, he has quite a challenge before him because he plays John Ferguson in 1937. He plays Douglas Hall in 1999 and then David in 2024. And most of these actors have at least one alter ego or sim. Gretchen Maul is Natasha Molinaro in 1999 and Jane Fuller the rest of the time and so on. The only character really that is a pretty main character and is only one version of himself, is Detective Larry McBain in 1999. Now, The 13th Floor was a co-production of Columbia Pictures and Centropolis Entertainment. Most of the film, as you might have guessed, was shot in LA, California. I think the film looks great. I think it looks lived in. I think it looks real, even though some of it is virtual reality. What did you think about the look of the film? Not only in the 30s, but in present day. Like, How cool did you think it looked? Well, I think it holds up. To modern day, nothing really stands out. I think probably because I just love the 37 set so much and the colors and just the noir vibes then, but nothing really stands out to me for the 1999 setting. What about you? 
Well, I don't know in the version that we're watching or that we watched recently, I don't know that it's been remastered like in the way that Chinatown was. So you're watching Chinatown, which was made in the 70s, and you watch it on the remastered Blu-ray now, and it just looks fucking phenomenal. The colors, the contrast, the richness of it. This film, I don't know that we're, that we're watching a remastered version of it. I think we're watching just the upgraded to Blu-ray version that was originally on the 1999 edition. I think if you watched a remastered version of it, I can only imagine how cool and how crisp it would look. That's my opinion. But it's also possible that with the budget, I mean, look, it had a $16 million budget. What type of budget were we looking at with The Matrix, for example? Let's see here. The Matrix had a $63 million budget. Now, obviously, a lot of that, it's, it's a bigger world in The Matrix, and there's a lot of choreography and a lot of effects, but that's a much more considerable budget. I don't know who the fuck this gentleman is, but there's a note here. Philosopher Slavos Zizek called the film much better than The Matrix. I think you do have to think in The Matrix, no doubt, but I think you also have to think about the 13th floor. And to me, one of the highlights of my existence is watching a film that's visually pleasing, it's suspenseful, it's breathtaking, but in addition to all of this, it also makes you think or question reality. Watching a contemporary Marvel movie now, it may take your breath away, it may be visually stunning, but how often does it make you doubt your own existence, or wonder if this plane that you're gliding on is the sole plane that exists. I mean, there's just so many metaphysical concepts that come to mind, and existential crisis-like considerations that are to be made when you watch these intelligent films. My mom appreciates sci-fi for that reason, and I guess she passed that trait along to me. Now, one of the taglines is, question reality, and you can go there even though it doesn't exist. Well, these are my contender taglines, or they could have served as backup titles. Victims of the Virtual, End of the Sim, Unseen Green Machine, Cutting Your Own Clone, Green Smokescreen, Main Framed, get it? Like you were framed? And then Main Frame Up, and lastly, Change of Human Will, because one of the main characters has his will changed, right? But it's like he's also changing his will, like his humanistic will. It touches on mystery, sci-fi, and it's also a thriller, but it's undeniably neo-noir at its core. So it, it's arguable that it has like four categories, but I really focus on the mystery, the sci-fi, and the neo-noir. Because at its heart, there's two mysteries that are trying to be solved, right? Detective McBain is trying to solve a mystery, and Douglas Hall is trying to solve a mystery. Do you feel like this film made you think? And I know you hate thinking, especially after a day at work. I sure do. But did it have you thinking? Did it have you thinking even after you watched the film? Contemplating things, considering things. Did it cause you to go into something of a spiritual snippet where it's like God in the machine type thing? No, but while I was watching it, I really, especially towards the end, you're kind of like, oh, crap, what is this? What's happening? And so I thought it was entertaining. I didn't bring that back into my reality, I would say. But I know there's people who who believe in that stuff because I've watched Unsolved Mysteries. Now it's time for TT or Trivialized Trivia. Douglas Hall's house has been seen on film before as the apartment of Detective Deckard in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, which also is a neo-noir science fiction thriller, as well as the apartment of a drug lord and predator fucking too. Now this is funny. 
because very recently for Slick Flick pick number 20, I did a review of Predator 2 with Wham Bam Cam. Maybe we should do Blade Runner just to complete the trifecta. It's a Frank Lloyd Wright building named Ennis House located in Los Angeles, California. And like you commented, it kind of has an aesthetic of House on Haunted Hill. Yep. One of my favorite movies, if not my, mm, at least my top five. I think it's probably. tied with the bat. Yeah. I mean, I think Rear Window is still number one for me. Well, just for Vincent Price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard it here first, Cinematic Fanatics. Add that to the list along with Book of Eli. We together will also be doing a classic section review where we will do two Vincent Price movies, double feature style, The Bat and House on Haunted Hill. Good evening. Oh, but wait, that's Alfred Hitchcock. Vincent Price would be more like, I'm a doctor. You need to listen to what I say because I'm a doctor. I'm going to murder you. I'm always a doctor. Honey, I think the doctor said that it was something that you ate that almost killed you. Yes. Arsenic on the rocks. <laughs> oh, but House of Wax, too. I don't know. We might have to do a whole Vincent Price trilogy segment. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it stops at probably three. Although the Tingler, the Tingler. The Tingler was a good fucking time. <laughs> this was one of two major motion pictures released in 1999 about a futuristic simulation whose inhabitants believe they're in the real world. The other was The Matrix released one month earlier. So if you want to talk about the worst fucking possible timing, try to make a sci-fi movie about an alternate reality one month after The Matrix. I don't even think this even probably made one fucking commercial. Although I do remember seeing many commercials of it on HBO, because if you had HBO and you went to your main browser, in the top left-hand corner, there would be little trailers that would start if you were hovering over that movie. I don't know about that. I didn't have cable. Okay, anyways. While the movie was a box office bomb, its theme song, Join Me in Death by Him, H-I-M, I don't even really like this song, became a worldwide smash hit. As stated in the DVD commentary by writer-director Yosef Rusnik, the final shot of the movie emulates an old-fashioned television set being turned off, where the picture collapses into a circle in the center of the screen and then fades away. This is to leave open the question of whether they are even higher realities above the one shown in the last scene being in the year 2024. Now, Red Devil, do you think at the end it's a sim or that's just reality? I think it's reality. Good. What do you think? I like thinking that way too, for the same reason that when Leo DiCaprio is spinning that dreidel totem at the end of Inception, I want it to just be real. It's like we've been taking on this long odyssey and I just want it to be done. I want, want there to, closure. I want there to be finality. Right. The virtual world of 1937 includes a newspaper that shows the fucking Hindenburg disaster, which indicates that the simulation was based to a large degree on actual history. This might also be seen in the struggling combined families that are shown living in near squalor, which would have happened to Midwesterners who left the Dust Bowl for California. Oh man, the way they were treated during the Dust Bowl? As is later seen, Natasha is said to have come from Texas. We drive out to the end of the sim and unveil the smokescreen green machine that was formerly unseen. The 13th floor, 1999, 2024, and 1937. It starts with a quote. I think, therefore I am. Descartes. The Latin cogito ergo sum, usually translated into English as I think, therefore I am is the first principle of René Descartes' philosophy. The dictum is also sometimes referred to as the cogito. Now, dictum, that's a good word. It means formal opinion. As Descartes explains, we cannot doubt of our existence while we doubt. 
And then Antoine Leonard Thomas, in an essay, would say, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. See, it sounds very simple, but the implications here are astronomically complicated, right? It gets very introverted, it gets very philosophical. Descartes' statement became a fundamental element of Western philosophy, as it purported to provide a certain foundation for knowledge in the face of radical doubt. While other knowledge could be a figment of imagination, deception, or mistake, Descartes asserted that the very act of doubting one's own existence served, at minimum, as proof of the reality of one's own mind. There must be a thinking entity, in this case the self, for there to be a thought. One critique of the dictum is that it presupposes that there is an I which must be doing the thinking. According to this line of criticism, the most that Descartes was entitled to say was that thinking is occurring, not that I am thinking. Now, do you think that Othello, who's on the cover art of Kimohawk Sessions, do you think he's aware of his own existence? Obviously, we know that's true. And we know that's true because every time we put him in front of a mirror, he doesn't start going ape shit. If he looked at himself in the mirror and didn't know that it was him, he would be acting as though there was another cat, like an interloper in the room, but he doesn't. Cats are aware of their own existence. I love putting him up to a mirror. He never looks at himself, though. I know, why, it's weird. Yeah, why don't they maybe that Maybe because they know they don't have souls or something. <gasps> How dare you say that about Othello? The phrase, I think, therefore I am, means that thinking is the one thing that cannot be faked. It is the one way that individuals know they exist. That's so true to the film because, for all these years, Vincent D'Onofrio is serving drinks, frigid as an Eskimo, straight up one olive. He's doing this for years in this endless loop. And in The Matrix, Mr. Anderson, clocking in every day to the white-collar black belt, right? Never questions it. Never asks any revelatory questions. It's just clock in, clock out. In these films, much like in Inception, when you start questioning your reality, it leads to galactically complex issues. Starts rotting out the mainframe from the inside out. And for example, in Inception, when they're crawling around in each other's minds, your thoughts start identifying a foreign thought or like an invader or an infiltrator as a hostile foreign substance, and they start lashing out. Once Vincent D'Onofrio hijacks the contents of this letter that was intended for Douglas Hall, that starts a cataclysmic problem within the mainframe of the 13th floor. That was just some philosophy, and as this is a sim within a sim, now we really dive into the 13th floor. Now we ascend to the unlucky numbered floor and to this green machine virtual sin, Jack N. See what I did there? I created a sim within a sim in a review of a movie about a sim within a sim within a sim. That's like sim squared quadrupled. Now, I love how it starts off. You get this narration along with the jazz music, as you were talking about. You have this nice old man with a pleasant European accent writing a letter. He licks the envelope and it's fucking disgusting. When he licked <laughs> he that envelope, a lot of saliva. I watched it twice in a row and uh. I'm like, that's like a massive bug hit the windshield coming out of his mouth. It's disgusting. He's got so much spit. He could probably feed a Russian village that was devoid of water with all of that spit. It's ridiculous. He leaves cash for a prostitute on the nightstand. As you know, there were prostitutes in the 30s. Martini, olive. Oh, in little trivia, if you want the martini extra dirty, that doesn't mean you want the bartender to stir it with his finger. It means that you want extra olives, i.e. olive juice. It's the olive juice that makes it dirty because it makes it like cloudy. Letter to Douglas Hall, 
is intercepted by Jerry Ashton, the bartender, or the barkeep, as they would have called him back in the day. And that's played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Now, Vincent D'Onofrio's acting is great in this film because he has the dual challenge of playing this creepy, cold asshole and just this creepy computer science tech dork guy. I think his acting's good in all films. But he usually is almost, almost typecast as being a, a crazy, demented villain. Okay, what are his villainous roles? The Cell. He was totally fucking terrifying in that. Full Metal Jacket. You feel bad for the pitiful guy, but he's definitely the bad guy. And he's a terribly horrible man in a slick flick pick that I did earlier, which is Strange Days. Now, Strange Days came out in 1995, so it was kind of ahead of its time. But it was actually Strange Days where they first talk about the concept of jacking in. And Ebert, who gave Strange Days four out of four stars, he said, prepare yourself. Because this film is using lingo and their virtual lexicon of these computer phrases that will be used for a long time to come. He was very prophetic in that assumption because here we are, four years later, 1999, from when Strange Days come out, and they're saying, jacking in. So you were right, Ebert. R.I.P. It's a stolen letter. The contents of the letter, that is. Now you get these streetcars. What fucking time are we in? Well, worry not. You will learn that it's 1937. Now, as Red Devil and I are such cat aficionados, we see a white cat. But it's not that pretty. It's just an average looking white cat. Now we see the character's eyes changing color. This will actually serve an interesting function. It is primitive, but it's useful. It's a useful cinematic prop technique, letting us know that that person has been jacked in too. Instead of you just trying to discern, oh, the person's gesticulations or micro movements are different. No, you can see their eyes change color and now you know they are not who they thought they were. And then, of course, you can see the link to the simulation be terminated from time to time. Now, how cool did you think that green light looked when they go in the machine? Oh, I love the green light. It reminded me kind of of a dance floor because it has like the lasers, you know? I thought it was awesome. Like laser tag, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to go in and shoot some, some lasers. Now, something interesting is happening with this main character, Fuller, the old man, because he wants a martini the same way that he wanted it in the other time period. Whether it's the old time period or the present, he still wants his martini the same way. This is an interesting little observation because it suggests to me that it's the same guy or he has the same tastes. There's no olives available. But the bartender offers, <laughs> instead of olives, oh, but I have pretzels for you. What the fuck kind of substitution is pretzels when you wanted olives? That does not work. I think he's just being a smartass. Yeah. But there are pretzels, and I would have taken him up on that. Now, this is a very noir shot, because he's on the payphone. He gets distracted because the door opens, and somebody's talking to this old man. And I love that it shows the bartender eavesdropping. This is a very noir technique. Like, it's that intrigue. It's that curiosity. It's, it's, it's like setting the stage for a mystery that needs to be unraveled. Oh, you see a switchblade. The old man is stabbed to death. Medications in a pill bottle fall to the ground. We see Rita Hayworth on the TV in the background. And I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty confident that that's Gilda. You think that's Gilda? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Gilda is a 1946 American film noir directed by Charles Vidor and starring Rita Hayworth in her signature role and Glenn Ford. In 2013, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. I've never seen it. If I did see it, it would only be because I wanted to see Rita Hayworth and see what all the fucking Hubba Baloo was about. Oh, we see a bloody shirt and a guy who looks confused. Clearly, he's looking at the shirt as though he either has amnesia or he's a sleep stabber or something. 
but his look does not match someone that just killed somebody in cold blood. This already feels like Dark City, which came out one year prior. It's the concept of amnesia, similar also to Memento, 2001. So you see, you get this pocket of films within a three-year span that deal with alternate realities, amnesia, not being responsible for your actions. Oh shit, now we see Detective McBain, LAPD. He's got one cool motherfucking hat and scruff. It's odd seeing him this way because usually he's so clean cut, but I like his look here a lot. Now we see the character Craig Bierko driving a Porsche, and this looks a lot like the Porsche that Alex Cross drove and kissed the girls. But as I'm not a car guy, I don't know, but it looks like it. We learn that the old man was robbed, and Hall worked for him for six years. They had a seemingly close relationship. And then it gets interesting because Hall says he doesn't smoke. Do you or don't you smoke? Because we see him in his sim as a different character, and sometimes he smokes, sometimes he doesn't. So I say, smoking in the sim, maybe. Now, the overhead shots of LA, you noted, actually reminds you of Michael Mann's Collateral. Very cool, the overhead shots of LA. I like it too. And then McBain talks about these advertisements that he sees as he drives home every day that say, it's basically these condominiums or these high-rises, you could be home already, live downtown. I think that's a pretty clever little catchphrase. Yep. Don't have to drive out to the suburbs. Now, McBain is a cool customer. He's making inquiries. He's asking questions. And when told, oh, you wouldn't be very interested in in the technology or whatever surrounding that, I'm paid to be interested. I like that. I like this guy. But finally, Hall has to pull the classified card and say, I'm not at liberty to discuss this. It's a multi-billion dollar project. It's a lot of software. It's a lot of intellectual property. I cannot get in it with you, Mr. David Palmer, sir, former president of 24, the show. And we learned that the old man not only worked in the building, but he basically lived there as his work was his life. And ironically, it was his death. Get it? Yup. Now we're introduced to the film's femme fatale, Jane Fuller, who claims to be Fuller's daughter, Jane Fuller. But then these questions emerge throughout the course of this film. Does he even have a daughter? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he has a daughter in some Sims, but not others. And then there's this sense of, like, sixth sense recognition. Have we met before, Fuller and Jane? This is not the moment that you alluded to in your favorite line, but it's along those same lines, where you're going to see this as kind of a motif throughout the film, where characters recognize other characters. They don't know how. There's awareness. Yes. Yep. It's like their consciousness desperately trying to come to life. Now we see the 13th floor, and we see the button on the elevator, and it's interesting because the 13th floor is the name of this film, and it does have a significance, but I think they could have picked another title for the film, Unseen Green Machine or something. I thought that would have been cool. And then we get a second version of Vincent. So you have Vincent D'Onofrio playing two completely different characters, and he's awesome. But remember, he's the bartender, and he's the computer dork. Now jacking in, like I said, straight out of Strange Days from 1995, Ebert was able to proselytize that, and he's brilliant. Now we're at the Omni Hotel, which is a very nice hotel, and it's LA circa 1937. Well, why 1937? Do you remember Red Devil? Yes, I do. Because that's when Hannon slash Fuller grew up. He wanted to recreate the era of his youth. And to me, kind of like Constantine said in our very first Slick Flick pick, number one, he's playing God. He's a kid with an ant farm, lady. Now the father wanted to shut the company down, when he learned of the sinister implications to it. And then you get this noir moment on the elevator between Douglas Hall and Jane Fuller. Now, Douglas 
will be the one that's heading the board or taking over the board. Say what? Who is this Douglas guy? He just kind of popped up out of nowhere. We learn that Fuller had amended his will. Dun, dun, dun. And this is where you get into more of that noir stuff, right? Like motive. Why was he killed? That's what McBain wants to know. That's what we want to know. But his will was amended before his death. Is there an insurance reason for this? Is this like a double indemnity thing? Is this a motive for murder? The plot fucking thickens. Fuller called Hall. But did he? Because there's no message on the answer machine. But then, Douglas Hall checks his messages, checks the deleted messages, finds the voicemail that Fuller left him. The plot thickens even further. Vincent D'Onofrio is ultimately in charge of the system on the 13th floor. Very well. But that also leads to speculation because if he's a bad motherfucker, he has the toys at his disposal to make life for a lot of Sims very, very difficult. At this point, do you think that Douglas is being framed or do you think that he killed and just doesn't remember killing? I think he's just confused. Honestly, I was confused at this point. If I was in his shoes, I would just be trying to figure out what was going on. In my, in my opinion, when I watch the movie, I think he's innocent, but he just needs to figure out what's going on. Yep. And I love when he gets in the machine to travel in time or to jack into his sim. He's like hyperventilating in the chamber. Like it looks like it takes a toll on your body. And in the sim, once you download into it, you are aware that you are now in the sim. So it's kind of like that show Westworld, where you're treating this simulated world as your own ant farm. He smokes in the sim. I also thought of another title, No Smoking Sim. <laughs> now we see this newspaper in 1937. Zeppelin Blast Kills 35. This is the Hindenburg. Yes, it did kill 35 plus one on the ground, so 36 total. But the Hindenburg disaster was an airship accident that occurred on May 6th, 1937 in New Jersey, United States of America. The German airship was a German commercial passenger carrying rigid airship, the longest class of flying machine and the largest airship. The accident caused 35 fatalities from the 97 people on board and an additional fatality on the ground. That was absolutely insane, but a spark ignited hydrogen on the outer skin. They were never able to determine exactly what caused it, but there was speculation. One was one of sabotage. Sabotage was commonly put forward as the cause of the fire, initially by Hugo Eckener, former head of the Zeppelin company, or another possibility was the static spark hypothesis. On the one hand, you have a saboteur. On the other, you have just dumb fucking luck. Or misfortune. Now you have Douglas Hall talking to Fuller. There's some recognition between the two. He works at a bookshop in this 1937 time period. He's asking him about a book that involves semiconductors. Hannon Fuller never heard of Hannon Fuller. So he is not aware of this simulated version of himself, which is interesting. But he's asking about microchips. There's no way he could have meant 1870 because there would not have been microchips. So he must have meant 1970. And then there's this deja vu Matrix moment, because you remember in the Matrix, if you saw the black cat twice in a row, it meant deja vu. You see more and more people recognizing people, like that, that sixth senseness of it. And then we get this cab scene, which just shows you the Industrial Revolution happening in Los Angeles at this time. And that's when we were talking about the wooden oil derricks. And it's a scene straight out of the Victory Motel in my favorite film, LA Confidential, where you see the pump jacks and the oil derricks and whatnot. But oil had been a byproduct of salt drilling, but did not reach commercial production until 1859, when a drilling rig struck oil at 70 feet deep in Pennsylvania. 
These earlier rigs were made of wood as they could be quickly built up. Back then, drilling was a gamble as rigs couldn't be easily moved once they were built. Interesting. And then we meet who I call Bridget Vanilla Manila because she's very vanilla. But I love her noirish dialogue. You a coppa? Then we see a Lucky Strike billboard. Makes me think of Mad Men immediately. And note that on the Hollywood sign, accurately, it has Hollywood Land. Now, you've seen the Hollywood sign up close, right? Yeah, relatively. I went to the observatory, and you kind of see it whenever you're over there. Yeah, my understanding is Hollywood Land was a real estate neighborhood, and they were trying to get people to move to the Hollywood Hills, and that was kind of their marketing ploy. The Hollywood sign is an American landmark and cultural icon overlooking Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. Originally the Hollywood Land sign, it is situated on Mount Lee in the Beechwood Canyon area of the Santa Monica Mountains, spelling out the word Hollywood in 45-foot-tall white uppercase letters and 350 feet long. It was originally created in 1923 as a temporary advertisement for a local real estate development, but due to increasing recognition, the sign was left up and replaced in 1978 with a more durable all-steel structure. The original sign was erected in 1923 and originally read Hollywood Land to promote the name of a new housing development in the hills above the Hollywood District of Los Angeles. Totally fucking correct. You are totally yeah. right. And it's if- really hard to get to now, too. They have it closed off, for sure, but technically you can hike up there. But it's very confusing. But the sign started becoming dilapidated, and then you just you lost the land, and now it's just Hollywood. Now you also see a Pepsi-Cola billboard, maybe a tie-in to the source material. So I learned that the source material, the book, which is called Simulacron 3, they actually explain the reason why they have Sims with all of these virtual people. And it's because they're trying to eliminate very abrasive advertising, and they're trying to eliminate polling. So they take your sim, they download you into this alternate world where they can make marketing changes and see how it affects the market and consumerism and things like that so that you on the real world surface do not have to be inundated any longer with all the polling and all all that bullshit. So I think it's interesting that you're seeing quite a few advertisements in the film that speak to this concept of what the novel talked about. Now, Mr. Grierson, that is the alter ego of Fuller, who owns this bookshop in The Sim. And it's antique or antiquarian books, but also various odds and ends. The old man is very good at playing innocent or confused. So I liked his acting in this film. Now, this is at its core a mystery film. Yes, it's neo-noir. Yes, it's sci-fi. But I think those just kind of complement the root, which is it's a mystery. It's a mystery that needs to be solved by many characters. Ashton slash Vincent D'Onofrio. Ashton does not seem to recognize Douglas Hall. And then I love, you love the line too, that's very noir. It's frigid as an Eskimo. That's barkeep speak. Straight up, one olive. He was not the letter's intended recipient. That was Douglas Hall. But because Ashton read the letter and purloined the contents, he would start a domino effect that would be disastrous to the mainframe. Vincent is lying out his devil Vincent ass because he did in fact steal the contents of the letter, and now he's just claiming that he has no knowledge of it whatsoever. He's plain dumb fuck. It's a rough transition between times. Your body takes a toll, and it seems like you need time to recover from this jacking out of it. 
And when you're linked or when you jack in, you have a dual conscience. And then, of course, when you come back to the real world, you leave your sim behind, and your sim just kind of continues on with its loop. Now, Ferguson is a smoker. You gotta smoke? And then I like when he comes back, he says, well, the colorization needs work, but the units don't notice. The units, as in these sheeple or this cattle. Riff Hutton, who has a small role as, like, the security desk clerk in this, he was Claudette Wim's boyfriend in that great cop show The Shield in two episodes. And I talk about that show a lot in example form from White Collar Black Belt. The bartender shows up. His name is Tom Jones. When I think of Tom Jones, I think of Carlton from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air dancing to Tom Jones. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. That's the song that he dances to about 50 times in that show. But this guy's trying to shake down Douglas Hall. He saw him stab the old man to death, which is interesting. And this is a straight up shakedown. But then Hall kind of turns violent and he actually attacks Tom Jones. He doesn't kill him. He just defends himself. But Tom Jones was looking for a seven figure payout for not going to the cops with this witnessing a murder. And he says, you killed the old man, asshole. And then they talk about America's Most Wanted. That is very 90s. Technically, it started in 1988. But one of the voices that I remember the most was John Walsh in America's Most Wanted. We get a stormy night. It's, again, very noir. Now, the rain has stopped here, sadly. But it is raining, and you get this heat lightning that looks really cool in the film. Now, there's this great restaurant where you have Gretchen Mall and you have Craig Bierko. And then you got this piano, kind of jazzy. It's a very cool vibe. Red Devil and I are in complete agreement. We love shit like that, right? Absolutely. She says she does not want him to lose interest in her, and she has come back from Paris. So she was in Paris, but when she learned about the death of Fuller, she has returned from Paris to the States. And that's where you get this discussion over dinner about deja vu and love at first sight. Now we see red laser lit guns at the Blade Runner house where they apprehend Douglas Hall for the murder. And you see smoking in the present day. Tom Jones is dead. Fucking dead. No more can Carlton dance to the man. But somebody reached out and touched him first, says Lieutenant McBain. Douglas Hall will not be in jail for long because Jane Fuller gives him an alibi instead of alibi. Get it? Get it? Get it. Your father stumbled onto something, he says, and Jane lies for him, provides him an alibi so he can get out of prison. Also, I noticed that you have to take your shoes off to go through the machine on the 13th floor. Yep. Well, that's better than in Terminator, because with Terminator time travel, you have to be completely naked. Now, there's a dance contest, as you have Douglas Hall and Gretchen Mall dancing on the dance floor. Very cool. Grierson has been having nightmares. Amnesia. He was in World War I, likely on the German side. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think he's German. The perfume would transfer through the sim. So he would come back with a perfume scent, which I think is interesting because it further bleeds between the lines of what's one sim, what's reality, and where do they intersect. Now, the doorman called him Fuller. This is also interesting. And then you get this cool locker room shot when Vincent D'Onofrio says, I'm Clark Gable. And then, of course, he tries to kill Douglas Hall and drown him in the pool. There's a scene where he's like, you can say I'm at the end of the earth or the end of the world. It makes me think of Hole in the Earth by Deftones. Great fucking song. I challenge you, cinematic fanatics, upon completion of this slick flick pick, go listen to End of the Earth by the Deftones. Much better than Tom Jones. I'm sorry. Hole in the Earth by the Deftones. 
Listen to that song. Great fucking song. The letter that we've alluded to multiple times, it was written by Fuller, and it said, Drive well out into town where you would never think to go. Do not follow any of the road signs and do not stop for anything. This is what the bartender did. And he reached what I call the limitations of the sim, or sim hilarities. Get it? Yeah. But he reached where they had stopped construction of the sim because it did have limitations. And what he saw has profoundly changed him. He realized that he is a computer simulation and he is not too happy about it. But then you get this cool chase in the boiler room area. And that letter served as one hell of a prop, didn't it? It really helped move the plot along. But basically, Ashton found out that his world was not real, similar to Neo in The Matrix. The lady, Gretchen, completely vanished. We also learn that Fuller does not even have a daughter. Were you shocked by that? Were you like, holy shit, he doesn't have a daughter? Yeah. I knew something was weird, but I didn't know what it was going to be. Now we see her alter ego, which is Natasha Molinaro, and she's working at a fucking grocery store, snapping gum, blowing bubbles. It's really weird. Like, why would that be her sim, you know? But the supermarket scene I love, and I notice that Douglas Hall buys like a two liter Pepsi, something that looks like antifreeze, and the total is $7.01. But it was just an excuse for him to talk to her. But I love his expression when he sees her. Like, he's just like, this is a fucking mind trip. And she sees him, doesn't really acknowledge him. But then she comes out in the parking lot later and she's like, wait a second, I know you. The items that he just purchased at the store, he just throws in the trash can. And then she says, I got to get back to my daily grinds. Has she been listening to Chemo Hawk Sessions? I guess she has. White collar, black belt. Unwind. Unwind, potience, your daily grind with Balsetto Profit. Well, now we're in the present day and we see this green grind or unseen green machine or green smoke screen, green bird. This is probably the coolest scene of the film. Because Vincent D'Onofrio drove out to the outskirts. It does not show what he sees, it just shows his reaction. So you have this curiosity that you must scratch. Well, Douglas Hall, in the 1999 present day, drives out and he sees the same sim. And you get to see what he sees. So you're rewarded for your patience. And it pays off marvelously. But this is a total fucked up mindfuck because it's a sim within a sim. And as far as we know, that's new territory. This is where Gretchen is really embracing that femme fatale component. And she says, yours, Douglas, is the only one. The only one where you are a sim within a sim. She was to be sent in as his daughter, as Fuller's daughter, inherit the company, and then stop the sim. But the old man tricked them and made Douglas Hall the protege and changed the will. Well, Craig Bierko actually stabbed him. But it wasn't really him, because her husband in 2024, which is the real present, probably, he would download into these characters in The Sim, and he would just go on murder sprees. He didn't start out that way. It was gradual. But you know what they say about gateway Sims? You go in once, you kill somebody, and then you can't get enough of it. Your user is basically a puppet when you drop down into that Sim world and you jack in, and he was killing people. So she originally loved David, but then fell out of love with him because he's a murderer in a sim anyway. But then she fell in love with the idea of Douglas Hall as he was portrayed in the sim. So it's a little wonky, but you just have to roll with it. Now Craig and Fuller learn the truth, and Gretchen's hubby is in fact the killer. Because he knew 
the motivation for David killing Fuller was that he was going to shut down the program and possibly get the authorities involved. So he just didn't want to deal with that bullshit. But he was using the sim, kind of like God with an ant farm and Constantine, as his own personal playgrounds. And he simply enjoyed killing. That's about all the motivation you're going to get on this movie that's under two hours. And then he says, I'm not even real. You cannot love a dream. And But that touches on the deja vu, right? Because if you feel like you already know somebody, even if they're not real, you still feel that connection, though it is no doubt imponderable. Now, Doug is in the trunk because he was passed out due to David taking him over. So that's why he does not remember killing anybody, because his mind was not in his body at that time. And this is very Westworld. But what we learn is that if you drop down into the sim, and then you die in that body, your sim ego then raises up one level above to where you are now. So it's like they ascend from hell into this earthly plane if you, your consciousness, dies in the sim. That is straight out of Inception. I wonder if Inception, like the dream within a dream within a dream, I wonder if that pulled from this film. I mean, I could see it being an influencer for sure. Makes perfect sense. Now, this music that's playing from time to time, it is identical to the End of Days choir music, which I sing in End of Days episode with Wham Bam Cam. (laughs) It's played here too. It's a really good fucking track. I love it. And then this is where McBain says, do me a favor, will you? When you get back to wherever you're from, just leave us the hell alone down here. I love it. Basically, the good guys prevail. David is killed by McBain right before he can kill anybody else. And because David dies in the sim, Douglas Hall, who the femme fatale loves, then ascends to the current time, 2024. So now for the first time in the film, you have the personality of Douglas Hall that Gretchen loves in the same place and the same time that she's in, in 2024. That's the first time this has happened that we've been watching. It's kind of a powerful moment if you think about it like that. All the cosmic coincidences that had to align for them to be together. But we see the LA Times 2024. Now remember, it's 2023 now in Red Devil in my life. Now with technology, <laughs> the AirPods, the earpods, as opposed to these big ass earmuff pieces that they wear. I mean, we have better technology now than they have in 2024, from what I can tell. Now note that from 1995 to 2024, That's 25 years. And the 25th episode of Slick Flick Pick is right around the corner. Now we see, in a big optimistic switch... At the beach. Her dad and a dog. Her dad is alive. Yay! And it's really her dad. So that means that Jane Fuller was really the daughter of Mr. Fuller. But then the TV shuts off in very old school TV format. Is it all a sim? Or is it real? This is huge. Like when Mr. Anderson or Neo flies at the end of The Matrix. Great fucking closing song. It's called Erase and Rewind by The Cardigans. Now, it's not as good as Wake Up by Rage Against the Machine. That was classic in The Matrix. But this song is pretty fucking close and it's up there. Now, do you remember how the song goes, Red Devil? Hey, 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 what did you hear me say? You know the difference it makes. What did you hear me say? I've changed my mind, I take it back, erase and rewind, cause I've been changing my mind, erase and rewind. It's a great fucking song, great fucking lyrics, and I always smile when it comes on, cause it takes me back to the 90s and the cardigans, and I love it! 
Best episode ever. Singing, singing, singing throughout the whole thing. Now, there's this article that really helps explain the 13th floor. It really goes into detail. It's very helpful. And it basically breaks it down into a way that you can kind of process it as you watch. But this is Barry's Where to Watch, and it's basically a layer cake, and it provides a little visual. So in 2024, you have the real world, if you accept this premise, and you have the real Hannon Fuller, you have the real David, and you have the real Jane Fuller, and that's it for purposes of the confines of this plot. But then in the late 90s, so 1999, the first simulation, you have Hannon Fuller, his carbon copy. You have Douglas Hall, who's the kinder version of David, who's really a puppet. You've got the sacker, Natasha Molinaro. And then you've got Jason Whitney, that's Vincent D'Onofrio. And interestingly, Jason Whitney does not have a 2024 counterpart. And Detective Larry McBain, not only does he not have a 2024 counterpart, he doesn't have a 1937 one either. But then in 1937, so think about it as two layers down, like in the film Inception, Hannon Fuller becomes Grierson, who owns that antique bookshop. And Douglas Hall becomes John Ferguson, who's a fucking bank teller. Jason Whitney becomes Jerry Ashton, and he is a bartender. Things would have just kept plugging along, but you had two catalyst events. You had Jerry Ashton realizing the truth about the sim and the limitations of the sim. And you see this stabbing. Hannon Fuller gets stabbed in the 90s simulation. Right. There is no Ebert review. But there is a review called the 13th Floor Blu-ray Review by R.L. Schaefer. The 13th Floor is an engaging thriller with a clever sci-fi twist. So far, I'm in agreement. Wrapped up neatly by a sharp director, a solid script, and good performers. Red Devil, would you agree with that assessment? I loved the acting. It's odd between 1998 and 1999. There were three mind-bending out-of-body adventures, each with a different take. Dark City, The 13th Floor, and The Matrix. Thanks to a taut script, the film moves like a flashy film noir thriller with a tech noir spin. The performances are top-notch, particularly D'Onofrio, who plays not one but two vastly different characters in the film. He commands the picture as one of the film's principal villains, but he's also the soft-spoken heart behind the virtual reality program, Nervous and Twitchy. The 13th Floor is basically the Matrix with a mystery twist, but it's also inventive and daring enough to be compellingly different. Is it better? That's debatable. But it's incredibly entertaining. Rot with tension, colorful characters, and a world that viewers won't likely forget. Is this my favorite film? No. Do I enjoy The Matrix more? In a way. Because it's Keanu Reeves. It's Trinity. It just has such a nuanced and discernible look to it. And it was so iconic and groundbreaking. But I don't often rewatch The Matrix. I saw it about 20 times between 1999 and 2004. I don't like the sequels as much as I like the first. The 13th Floor, I think, for what it offers on the budget that it had, being under two hours, it was probably very difficult to translate the original novel onto the screen. I love this film. It's definitely worthy of slick flick pick status. When I do Constantine, I may be inadvertently giving it some credit that is allowing people that maybe haven't seen it or people that didn't appreciate it as much to now appreciate it. But this is a film that I really am trying to provide that service where I want people to watch the 13th floor. I want them to question their fucking reality. And I want them to question the confines of the white collar environment, much like Mr. Anderson in The Matrix. 
Yeah, that is definitely your mantra and really how you live your life, questioning everything, which is really awesome, but also can be frustrating. Do I question everything? I mean, you question a lot of stuff. I think I take a lot at face value. If I see a posted rule, I'll just be like, well, can't do that. I guess I'm gonna have to find another way because I can't do that because it says I can't do that. That's fair. I think think instead of questioning, if I was really going to apply the proper terminology to my own existence, I would say that if I see something or if I'm told something or if I observe something that makes sense to me right off the bat, I see no need to explore further. If I see it and it makes sense, great. Now, sometimes I'll watch a film, which is a sheer leisurely activity, and it will make sense. But because I enjoy film, I'll watch it again and again, and then I might start having questions where things that initially made sense on a surface level, as you drill deeper, they don't make as much sense. So that leads to questions. But I think if I hear something or if I witness something that does not make sense, then I will question it until it makes sense. And I'll tell you, when you have an initial quandary or inquiry or something that you question, and then you get that answer, it's satisfying. But what really plagues me are things that never make sense. And when you start asking questions, they become more convoluted. That's what I really struggle with. Because then not only do I feel like I'm no closer to comprehension, but I feel like all the energy that I've expired, I can't get back and it was all for naught. But question your reality, audience. Question reality in your real world and question reality when you're watching films and ask yourself the question, does this make sense? A professor that I had in college that I had a, well, more than a modicum of respect for, somewhere between a cornucopia and a plethora of respect for. But he said, if you want to remember something when you're studying and when you're learning and you're feeding your brain knowledge, ask yourself at checkpoints along the way, does this make sense? And it will help you remember. Did you have any other last minute asides or thoughts on the 13th floor, Red Devil? No, I love that little last component of our conversation. Cinematic fanatics, please. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating for Kimohawk Sessions. If there's any particular episodes that you get something out of, please let us know. Because while we try to be mind readers, we are not. There are artificial motions in, but authentic limits to, their sim. What began as a virtual exercise with nostalgic insight, revealing a city brilliant and bright, has degraded into grim, gloomy, and dim. But we ask, as Gretchen asks, which version of the man she loves is him? The letter's coveted contents, the barkeep will skim, and then he'll scratch a glitchy, phantom, mental limb. In this neo-noir world, the femme fatale's blonde hair is curled, and the artificial detective's eyebrows remain furled, for he seeks to uncover this sim's underworld. But this mainframe up ushers you to the end of its world. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinephile, and you are our cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible. For our next Slick F-Stars pick, pick 24, Slicker Flick Pick. What? Why did I make it slicker? What? Why? What? Blood is slicker than water. Blood stained balustrade. I know what you did last summer. Yeah! 1997. One of Red Devil and my 
favorite slasher films from the 90s. We will be doing I Know What You Did Last Summer. What do you want from me? What are you waiting for? Uh, Falsetto and Red Devil out.